I mean, when we're talking about all of Asia over all of time, and that's how <laughs> it's organized, that's the organizing principle. I'm like, mm, that just makes everyone want to yawn, you know? It's, it's overwhelming and exhausting to think about all of Asia from the beginning of time. Welcome to Magic Praxis, a podcast in which artists talk to artists in their studios. In this episode, guest host Maya Cruz Palaleo interviews Chitra Ganesh in her Brooklyn studio. I'm Kate Haas, and this is Clarity Haynes. Chitra Ganesh is a multidisciplinary artist whose work explores mythology, symbols, and narrative. Her current show at the Rubin Museum, The Scorpion Gesture, is a series of large-scale animations which draw on and engage with objects in the museum's permanent collection of Himalayan art. In a second part of the show, Face of the Future, Ganesh invited seven emerging artists, including Palileo, to create works relating to the theme of science fiction and the future. Maya Cruz Palileo's artwork is based on themes of migration and the mutable concept of home, influenced by her family's oral history of their arrival in the United States from the Philippines. She is currently preparing for a solo show at Pioneer Works in May. In our visit to Chitra's Dumbo studio, the two artists discussed the unearthing of suppressed cultural histories, the politics of access and inclusion in the contemporary art world, and mentorship. Thank you, Clarity and Kate, for inviting me to host this. And thank you, Chitra, for having us over in your studio. I'm so glad you guys came. I'm looking forward to our chat today. Yeah, me too. I guess I met you at Brooklyn College, like my yeah, very first semester. I had like nothing in the studio, and you were you were like, okay, like, what do you want to do? You know? um, but anyway, I'm just happy that we still have this relation. I mean, it was mm -hmm. kind of a surprise, you know. I didn't know uh, that would happen, but um, you were my mentor in the queer art mentorship uh, program, and I wanted to ask who your mentors have been? I would say that I definitely in grad school felt mentored by Janine Antoni and Kara Walker. They were very generous with help and honest with feedback and information, but it was more about studying with them in a way, rather than having a mentorship that was ongoing. Um, I mean, I think that that's not really something I've had, actually. I think it's different people at different times. When I was growing up, sometimes it would be parents of friends or whoever I thought could possibly provide a glimpse into some other model of being. Also, I think Zarina is a role model for me, definitely. Um, Shazia Sikander is someone that I have known for a really long time and was at one point one of the only people I knew who was actually exhibiting in a mainstream contemporary art space. So and that was before or after? That was were... in like 1999. Okay. Yeah, I think it's hard. I think that there were so many challenges for the generation prior. I mean, there was so, the 
level of misogyny I just cannot even imagine, fathom, like what some of the previous generations of artists, women artists, queer artists, black artists, brown artists, all, all versions of artists would have faced in the face of the dominant mode of understanding. I mean, I was just reading an, uh, an essay that was quoting Clement Greenberg vigorously denying any American abstraction that was influenced by Asian art. The denial was like so deep and that was the norm. So I think that we're in a better place now that makes an idea of having a structure like queer art mentorship possible. A lot of the histories that you kind of miss or histories that you work with in your work are like not easily accessible. Like I, I think I read in an interview with the interview you did with Jarrett about like being in school and like they didn't talk about like art of Asia or Indian art is like a million years old or something. And how have you been able to unearth history, like the, the histories that myths that you work with that have been and are being silenced or erased or buried or destroyed? Like how are you able to find them? Like what is your research like? I mean, I think a lot of times they're contained within stories that are circulated and uh, very popular. You know, I think that oftentimes, even in early science fiction, not all of it, but some of it, women characters are there and actions are either done by them or done onto them to describe the men not as a kind of plot point in its own right, or to describe the kind of character or realm of this place. So like, for example, in Alan Moore's The Watchmen, you have the silhouette, who is this uh, superhero who is a dyke bashed, and that story of that happening to her and kicked out of their sort of superhero cadre, that whole story is already in the book. So I think some of it is just looking differently and filling in some question marks. I think that these narratives that get sort of shoved under or subsumed to the main one are, are very much there in plain sight often. So I think that some research needs to happen and definitely engaging with that archivally or creating works like this podcast with the idea of an archive in mind is really important. But, you know, even in my collaboration with Mariam Khani, Index of the Disappeared, a lot of the stuff that we connect and collect is I mean, it's all in the public record, first of all. So, And a lot of it is not even hiding. It's in plain, full view of the big, broad day. So I think it's just about looking at those things differently, maybe. So, yeah, I would love to talk about the show since it just opened. And um, it was a collaboration between you and the Rubin Museum. And a lot of the work from the collection was in the animations. And you, you had access to that, right? Yes. So... Um, the show came about, I think, uh, through the convergence of two things. One is my ongoing 
collegial relationship, which then evolved into a friendship with um, Beth Citron, the curator at the Rubin. She's someone that I've known for many years. She also does research and curation in South Asia. One of the ideas that Beth had for the project was to think about how a contemporary artist and how contemporary exhibitions could activate the collection. So oftentimes in museums that have both encyclopedic collections and contemporary art, the two are very much separate. Um, that's something, for example, I just loved about going to the Manil is that you can see a first century Roman funerary urn next to a 20th century expressionist painting. And um, I think that being able to look at objects through a different lens is, um, is really important. And it's important for the work that we all do because it's about trying to write a new art history or trying to write a different art history, um, often by taking what's already there and constructing a different narrative arrangement with the same ideas. So that was part of the impetus for how the show came about. and. The museum's theme for the upcoming year, the future or the futurist fluid, was something that was going to be the anchor of all of the different exhibitions thematically, somehow would be related to some version of the future. And the anchor for that was around the figure of Padmasambhava, who's also known as the second Buddha, and he has different prophetic iterations that are supposed to emerge in the future. Padmasambhava was responsible for bringing Buddhism to Tibet from South Asia. And so in that process, as part of his story, there are several scriptures and studies and teachings that ended up being buried all mm -hmm. over Tibet and all over South Asia. And these are supposed to be revealed. They're supposed to be like future revelations. So we were talking about the future. The museum was initially interested in using VR or AR. Mm -hmm. And I think that because of the way in which the works uh, needed to be in discourse with the collection and the spatial arrangement of the museum. VR would have been very difficult. I think people would have actually been like bumping into <laughs> stuff and virtual reality that is. And uh, in contrast, augmented reality is more controlled. It's uh, the process of creating a moving image that you can overlay onto something much like a Snapchat filter that you could overlay on a portrait. So it would mean that I could pick up this iPad and hold it up to a collection object and then something would happen. But I was really interested in using animation in part because I feel that the technology for augmented reality isn't something that I'm familiar with in this context, I have seen it applied more commercially, like to sell a Converse sneaker or something, which is, or an Ikea table, which is very different. But also I was interested in not just activating the objects, but doing a, a sort of deeper storytelling with those as anchor points in connecting the future to the past. So that's how the exhibition sort of organically formed. And something that was really exciting about working on it was that um, it was so 
there were so many questions that kept popping up along the way and then different answers that we came up with ended up actually constituting the final exhibition. So like what kind of like, questions? Like for example, in the so Maya is also in the exhibition. So the exhibition has two parts. It's called the Scorpion Gesture, and then there's the Face of the Future, which looks at the different visual languages that have contributed to our understanding of the future and different versions of contemporary science fiction. So, initially, in the theater level, we were going to have classic or cult science fiction film posters. So when we were looking for the posters. We noticed that a lot of the posters that were more interesting were much harder to obtain and that to get an original poster for a cult film could be hundreds of dollars and I just felt like people I know who are working in this way, my peers, what they could make would be far more interesting and would really actually even give more depth and dimension to this idea of visual languages that have informed our construction of myth or future or any of these things. So then I was like, can I just invite some people? Can we have actually artists be commissioned to do this? And so all of you guys are people who work like deeply with either a personal or cultural mythology, with archival materials, with printmaking or design, with science fiction or comics. At the opening, uh, a lot of people, I met some of the other artists, which was really, I mean, just as a way, a collaboration yeah. in a way for you. And, you know, in some of the emails that was going on in the chain of artists, you know, like generosity and, um, you know, for you to reach out and say, hey, I had this idea, but now I want to do this and sort of extend that opportunity to other artists, I thought was really, uh, well, generous was the word that was going oh, thank around. You. So thank you for that. We'll return to the conversation between guest hosts Maya Cruz Palileo and Chitra Ganesh in a moment. You're listening to Magic Praxis a podcast in which artists talk to artists in their studios. Don't forget to check out our website, magicpraxis.com, where you'll find images of the artwork we discuss, as well as more information about each episode. And if you enjoy these discussions, please rate and review us on iTunes and tell your friends about us so we can continue to grow our audience. And now, back to the studio. One of the animations in, in the scorpion gesture was the future Buddha, where you projected onto the Buddha. Yeah. And then there were also just the images in there with the protests and sort of like the earth, you know, things that are happening that we see in the news, devastation. Yeah. And like, and then like connecting that to the, and like standing in front of this future Buddha. And it's like, oh, is this, this is the future. But then also like, what does protest have, like, how does that, affect the future, you know, like mm -hmm, all mm -hmm. of these things and like bringing contemporary images into it and around the world as well, not just what's happening here. Yeah. Um, I thought that was, that really just like kind of put me in my body and. Um, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, well also like the imagery is on a body and, yeah. you know, and like, I wonder, um, 
one of my questions was about the intervention, that the animations are an intervention. And I was wondering, why was it important to make an intervention? Like, at the museum, like, what are they intervening on? For me, I'm less intervening in the objects themselves, which I think have their own autonomous future life and history, but I'm more intervening in how those objects are looked at and categorized. Mm -hmm. So for example, I'm reading this book right now, um, which is called African Art as Philosophy. And one of the interesting points that he makes within this particular field of study was the desire to look at these objects as art and not as relics of some extinct culture or as uh, evidence of plunder or as archaeological fragments. And that really struck me because that's something that I think is exciting about what the Rubin is doing and how it functions, which actually didn't really know uh, before I engaged with the project because I had gone there to see specific shows, but I myself was never deeply um, like studied Himalayan art. I was familiar with some of the aspects of it, but I think that something else for me that was the intervention was just resituating how we look at these objects and think of these histories. And I actually uh, had that experience for myself, for example, like when I was making one of the pieces which uh, the animation called The White Barrel, which was which the was one a, with there is a girl juggling. Oh yeah. And part of what she's juggling is the elements. So fire, air, iron, water, and earth. And I mean, I re-familiarized myself with the elements by watching Airbender, you know, like Avatar, that there's like so much in our contemporary culture that is already um, using some of these signifiers and imagery and history. So for me, it was more just revealing something that's already happening and also hoping that people could reconsider the objects and the kinds of influence and capacity for scholarship and interest and um, formal engagement and all of that that they actually have. Mm -hmm. Well, with, with museums too, yeah, I feel like I'm learning more about institutions like when I went to Chicago and I went to the Field Museum. I grew up there and I would go there on field trips yeah, and I yeah. had no idea that anthropology was messed up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I just learned it like with everybody else and now that I'm an artist and I'm interested in these things. I'm interested in my culture and my history and stuff. And it's like, that's where I go or that's where we learn. And then happens to be that it's like these people, like, you know, the plunder and like the, um, just look at all these goods. And now we have this civilization, they're going to disappear. So we're going to have this. And they literally had 10,000 objects from the Philippines. And they, they were asking people from the Filipino American community, come over and tell us, what is this? What is this basket? And I'm like, where did this even come from? Like, you know, they obviously they sent, it was, a, it had to do with the World Fair and, you know, people being shown like, you know, here's our newest conquest and all this stuff. Yeah, no, so, I think yeah. I completely agree. When you were, when you were saying that, I was just remembering how, um, 
when I went to the British Museum most recently, I literally felt like I was going to faint. I was having some kind of like <laughs> somatic irritation and suddenly I was really nauseous oh. and my girlfriend and her friend were like, dude, what's wrong with you? You know, what's going on? And they were like, she must be hungry. Let's go get lunch. And the minute I left the museum, I was totally fine. But I think one yes. of the reasons that I was able to reconsider those things was because of listening to and loving the history of the world in 100 objects and listening mm. to the extremely complex relationships of trade and romance and business and travel and exiles and, and power, you know, that inform all of these objects. It was just so amazing. And I think the other thing that struck me about the Rubin is that it feels specific and coherent enough mm -hmm. that I can kind of grasp it. I mean, when we're talking about all of Asia over all of time, and that's how <laughs> it's organized, that's the organizing principle. I'm like, mm, that just makes everyone want to yawn, you know? It's, it's overwhelming and exhausting to think about all of Asia from the beginning of time. <laughs> the specificity of this gave me a lot of information about the paintings and you know, thinking about the topography of the Tibetan plateau and thinking about the mountain air and thinking about the hallucinatory honey that's harvested and aspects of it that are actually very specific to a geopolitical region. Mm -hmm. I looked at this book a lot, which is basically, it's a visual dictionary of all oh, wow. of the symbols in these works. And this is, for example, where oh, yeah. I found That's in the, the hair. Animation. This is the uh -huh. hair pounding the nectar of immortality. Wow. Isn't that That's something? Amazing. So it was, in fact, like learning a language, you know? Yeah. And, and um, also they all appear in the animation. So, it's like so yeah, so it was oh, like yeah, okay. learning about all of these different formations and you know you I was using this like a dictionary yeah. actually of of imageries and in that way it was really fun and connected to my own earlier interests like looking at Borges's dictionary of imaginary beings mm -hmm. or fields of signs and symbols that I became interested in I guess which is Surrealism is heavily invested in as well. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, there's a lot of information. They also had a terrific online resource and archive where you can really scroll through the paintings as if you were like your nose was pressed up against them, which Whoa. is really amazing. And so, for the collages downstairs, some of them, that's where I um, got some of that material mm -hmm. was modifying and working with some of the imagery that I found in the paintings. Mm -hmm. Oh, so, so you, because they have the digit, it's all digitized. Yeah, it's all digitized and I'm able to look at it closely and paint from it. So I just ended up doing a lot of research. Uh, this is another really amazing book. The book is called uh, The All-Knowing Buddha and it's basically, there was a, Franciscan monk who was living around in this China Mongolia area um, at the turn of the 20th century and 
he actually became very close with a lot of the Buddhist monks and they exchanged knowledge and friendship and company and study. And he commissioned an artist to make these 54 leaves of the Buddha. I mean, another side point is if you look closely at them, you can see how much this work is already talking about animation and movement and moving image. I mean, it's just happening on its own without even an intervention. But he commissioned these 54 leaves and then he put them up in his cell and he lived with them for the rest of his life. So I was reading this uh, piece that you wrote for Art Forum from last January. Like, right mm -hmm. after the election. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, like, reading this now since it's been about a year, but... Well, one part is a, a quote from John Berger that says, The truth is that mass demonstrations are rehearsals for revolution, not strategic or even tactical ones, but rehearsals for revolutionary awareness. The delay between the rehearsals and the real performance may be very long. And that just this part says, What remains to be seen is whether those in the contemporary art world with privilege, visibility, and decision-making power will be able to connect their shock and critique of the current state of affairs, of the prominence of proto-fascist, Islamophobic, and racist ideologies, with an ongoing series of absences and erasures, both discursive and representational, of brown, black, immigrant, disabled, dissenting, and other othered voices, from museum shows, anthologies, symposia, executive staff, boards, and trustees. For example, next time you encounter an opening, gala, meeting, propaganda-making, party, birthday, exhibition, group critique, feminist event, count the number of brown people in the room. Is everyone able-bodied? What, what about the queers? How did this come to be and why? Were you the only person of color in the room? Or one of three? What could be done to change this? This is awesome. How, so I guess that's, those are my questions for you. What <laughs> can be done to change this? I've, I've definitely experienced this, and I, and anyway, it, I guess I'm asking. Ah, uh, um, I think part of it is focusing on how things work structurally, which somehow our society, which is so individually oriented, is a little bit allergic to doing. So. I think um, that includes not just having debates about uh, what do we think about Harvey and what do we think about Chuck and what do we think about you know Woody, but actually if the museum or the industry was doing what its job should be, which is having a diversity of concept, content, representation that actually mirrors the cosmopolitan cities in which these museums are located, I don't think they would have time to worry about Woody and Chuck and Harvey so much. So I think that actually this particular version of an art world, which is very elite and commercially oriented, is extremely hierarchical. And, um, you know, black people are the janitors and brown people are the security guards and white women work in education and some other white women curate. And how much diversity is there on the board of trustees, really? And 
until those things change, I don't think it's going to change. Because otherwise, I think that the museum will include whoever is the most visible kind of marker of the oppressed at any moment, in any cultural moment, and then will pat itself on the back for that inclusion and then keep it moving. So I think the structure itself needs to change. I think artists having structural analysis would help that. Understanding that your position isn't happening because of a meritocracy. I think this idea of these these people are great and the market naturally uh, uplifts the best, objectively best work and all of these other ideas that maybe were viable 20 years ago, it's just not. And also the cracks in the edifice are showing. I mean, it's like we see that the Koch brothers are uh, propping up the Met and we see what's happening with the Board of Trustees at the Queen's Museum and this insane, horrible removal of Laura Rykovich. I think it's Laura Rykovich, but yeah, I think that those, those bigger questions have to be asked, you know? and everybody has to hold the umbrella open for everybody else. Yeah, well, that, that also makes me think of the title of your show, because what, what is, it means, um, I wrote it down here, the, the mudra known as the scorpion gesture is said to have unlimited power and potential for transformation. Yeah, it's like supposed to be sort of clearing some one situation of unresolved or evil or troublesome energy in order for another situation to arise. I like that. It gives me hope. Like, it makes me feel like artists have power. I mean, there's a lot of power in that. Yeah, and it's really wonderful when there's a way for institutions to center artists' needs in creating their work, which was something that I felt was really nice for me in the context of this project that we just did together, so. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so happy that we got a chance to have this chat and thank you for inviting us, Clarity and Kate. This episode of Magic Praxis was mixed by John Bender, who also does our music. Sign up for future episodes on iTunes or at magicpraxis.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>